Indeed, all praise is due to Allah, and as such we should praise Him, seek His help, seek refuge in Him from the evil which is within ourselves, and the evil which results from our deeds. For whomsoever Allah has guided, none can misguide, and whomsoever Allah has allowed to go astray, none can guide. And I bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah, and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the last messenger of Allah. As I mentioned earlier, the topic of the lecture is seven habits of truly successful people. And this work, as I, this presentation that I uh, put together, is based as a concept on a book by Stephen Covey called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And there are a number of other books like that on the market where uh, people who are into motivating uh, others in companies and in various walks of life you know, have made it a business to study the lifestyle, the way of thinking, etc. of the successful people of the society and then extract from their behavioral patterns certain guidelines which people would uh, take and then utilize in their lives to achieve the kind of successes that they achieved. However, these various books are based on a particular world outlook. One in which the material world is all that is being considered. So these principles, generally speaking, will benefit people in the material world, it will help them to be successful, etc. However, for those who believe that there is a life after this, and that one will have to stand to account for what one does in this life, a number of the principles and habits and traits and characteristics which have been identified are unacceptable. They're unacceptable because they involve deception, uh, aggression, uh, exploitation, etc., etc. As for those whose goal or whose understanding of this world is that it is a stepping stone to the next and that the goal is actually the next life and not really this one, then their criterion of success or what constitutes success is not a material one, but one in the life to come. Success and ultimate success is success in the hereafter, not necessarily in this life. If one is able to achieve uh, success in both this life and the next, then of course this is the better uh, situation or the better way to go. However, if success in this life means failure in the next, then it's better not to succeed. It's better not to succeed. It is more important that we succeed in the next life than in this. So what may be deemed or what may be uh, concluded as being failure in this life, which in fact 
produces success in the next life is not really failure. It only appears to be failure based on the material standards of this world. But in fact, it is ultimately success. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us in the Quran that we do and we should strive for that balance between the two, telling us to pray, Rabbana atina fi dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana wa qina adhabin nar. That all Allah, our Lord, grant us good in this world and in the next and shield us from the hellfire. And we also have another uh, verse where Allah says there for us to, as a reminder to us, وَلَا تَنْسَى نَصِيبَكَ مِنَ الدُّنْيَا That is, don't forget your portion of this world. However, people oftentimes use that as an excuse to spend all of their lives getting that portion of this world. And that is only a piece of the verse. Actually, the verse begins with وَابْتَغِي فِيمَا أَتَاكَ اللَّهُ الدَّارُ الْآخِرَةِ That is, seek from what Allah has granted you the next life. Of the things that Allah has granted you in this life, seek the next life. But don't forget your portion in this life. So we have to keep that within the context of the verse and not take it as an excuse to spend all our time trying to get our portion of this word. And as I said, Ultimate success is success in the next life. What is that? In simple terms, it's paradise. That is the ultimate success. And in order to achieve that, there are a number of principles which have been given to us by the Prophet Muhammad have been mentioned to us by Allah in the Quran. And among them, for example, is that this world is a prison for the believer and paradise for the disbeliever. This is a principle, a general principle. Ad-dunya sijnul mu'min wa jannatul kafir. It means that we should have a particular outlook. When we look at this world and how we approach it, we should approach it as a prisoner approaches prison life. He is restricted or she is restricted in this life. Because they are looking for release from this life, ultimately in the next life, the paradise will be there. But for the disbeliever, of course, there is nothing coming afterwards. So this life is all that there is. So they will seek to get from it everything they can, at any means or by any means necessary. So we have a situation of... Disbelievers looking at this life basically, or materialists looking at this life basically as paradise. Now, what we're going to be looking at? The seven habits of truly successful people. As I said, the truly successful are those who attain paradise. Prophet Muhammad based on divine revelation, did mention some of his companions as being among those who would be in paradise. He told them in this life that they would be among the people of paradise. 
There are ten of them commonly referred to as Al-Mubashiruna, Al-Ashra, Al-Mubashiruna Bil-Jannah. The ten promised paradise. But actually the number is more than that. The ten include Abu Bakr, Umar, Ibn Al-Khattab, Ali ibn Abi Talib, Uthman, Ibn Affan, Abu Ubaidah ibn Al-Jarrah, Talha ibn Ubaidillah, Al-Zubair ibn Al-Awwam, Abdurrahman ibn Awf, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, and Sa'id ibn Zayd. These are the well-known ten. However, Prophet ﷺ did mention a number of other companions. Some of them by name, some of them on occasions where even their names have not come down to us. On one hand, one might say, well, if the Prophet ﷺ told them that they're going to paradise, so that they would end up in paradise, wouldn't that discourage them from efforts here? In fact, it didn't. They strove even harder. Because of their level of iman, their striving, that knowledge did not deter them or weaken their desire to strive to do what Allah had commanded in this life. Now, what I have done in preparing this topic is I've looked at the lives of these companions. Those whose names are mentioned as well as those who haven't, whose names haven't. And I tried to extract from them certain characteristics and principles that they lived their lives by, which hopefully would benefit myself and yourselves in guiding us towards the kind of characteristics, traits, or habits that we should have if we want ultimate success, the ultimate success of paradise. Now, the first, the first principle would be to correct your world outlook to correct your beliefs. This is the starting point. Prophet Muhammad ﷺ had said, whoever sincerely believes from his or her heart and says, there is no God worthy of worship but Allah, la ilaha illallah, they will enter paradise. So that's a general promise promise from Allah. Now, that promise is basically a statement of the foundational belief which everyone must have in order to attain paradise. It was the same foundation which uh, was given to Adam and was given by all of the prophets of Allah down through the centuries. Belief in Allah first and foremost and that he is the only one worthy of worship now what we're starting with then is the concept of God's existence for those people who are not believers then or they're non-Muslims or whatever this is the first question that has to be asked does God exist and they need to come to the conclusion that he does exist 
and that it is not only uh, a belief taught by the world, leaders, spiritual leaders throughout history and the true prophets of God. It is also a logical belief arrived at by philosophers, Greek philosophers of the past through reasoning, etc., came to the same conclusion. And when we look at the alternative, the alternative that this world came about by chance, and modern science now speaks of the Big Bang, everything starting with the Big Bang, and nobody speaks about what was before the Big Bang. The point is that if we think of this world as coming into existence with this Big Bang, Big Bang is like what? It's an explosion. It's an explosion. Matter exploding out into the space. Think about this. To arrive at this earth with all of its complex life forms, the ecosystems and everything, this planet revolving around the sun at the right distance and everything from the sun to sustain life and all the different factors that are involved. To say that this was a product of an explosion, you know, which involved matter expanding without any kind of direction and programming, that is like saying, I will drop a bomb in a junkyard and when it explodes I'm gonna find in it a car that I can get in and drive off with you know or a toaster that I can put my bread in and toast or anything a refrigerator just as common sense tells us no matter how many bombs you drop in a junkyard you're never going to produce a car or a refrigerator or even a toaster from a bomb dropping in a junkyard, well that is as, as stupid and as foolish as it is to say that this world was a result of the Big Bang. No. Scientists who are open-minded admit that that early compressed matter that was there, before that Big Bang actually took place, or within seconds of its taking place, within nanoseconds of its taking place, already each and every atom was already told where it had to be. To produce what we have, it had to already have known where it had to be. That is the reality. Otherwise it couldn't happen. Any more, as I said, than a bomb in a junkyard producing that. Modern science has told us a couple of years back, scientists uh, researching in mental cases, people who have schizophrenia and uh, other mental illnesses, experimenting, putting probes into people's brains. Right? They would bore holes in the skull and stick a probe in and wiggle it around and see what happens. Maybe it will cause a change. This is ex Western experimentation. What they found was that there is a spot in the front of the brain which each and every person that they put the probe in and they wiggled it around there, the person would have these massive religious experiences, you know, a sense of God being present kind of thing. 
So they, they named it, and this was in an article, this was produced by scientists in America, they call it the God Spot. It's a big article, I have the article, and if you want it, I can fax it to you. It said, God Spot found in the brain. They put it another way, one of them was saying, the brain was, is hot-wired for belief in God. These are the evidences. Modern science is finding it itself. And if we look in the Quran, there's a recent, fairly recent discovery, uh, which I think is worth reflecting on for a minute. And that is Surah Al-Hadid. The 57th chapter of the Quran. In verse 25, Allah says there, وَأَنزَلْنَا الْحَدِيدِ فِيهِ بَأْسٌ شَدِيدٌ وَمَنَافِعُ لِلنَّاسِ That is, I have revealed, that's how it's usually translated, I have revealed, or I have sent down iron, which has great force in it, strong force, and benefit for humans. Now the term anzelna was translated as revealed, interpreted as revealed from the early generation of interpreters because the word anzelna does also mean reveal. But even when Allah uses the term, you know, anzelna ilayka dhikra, for example, the Quran, and we reference the Prophet Muhammad that Allah revealed the Quran to him, it did actually involve a coming down. The Qur'an was sent down from the Lawh al-Mahfuz down to Bayt al-Izzah in the first heaven. And from there, Agent Gabriel used, or Jibreel used to take verses according to Allah's instruction down to the Prophet So there was a process of coming down. Now, modern science, in looking at the issue of iron in the world, They came to the conclusion that the origin of iron was from the core of the earth. Because the core of the earth is, is approximately 35% iron. And then nickel. This is the core, the molten solid followed by molten core of the earth. And as you go farther away from the core, you get less and less uh, iron until you get uh, in the crust of the earth some 5.6% iron. Still it is amongst the highest elements in the crust, percentage-wise. But still it appears to come from the inside outward. So where does the idea of the coming down of iron fit in? Again, the conclusion was it was revealed, that is, knowledge of its use was revealed to human beings. Allah gave them the capacity to understand and to utilize iron. This was the explanation given. However, more modern research came to the conclusion that in fact, iron couldn't have begun in the core of the earth. It couldn't have begun there. Why? Because the sun of our solar system, which is the hottest location in the whole solar system, in its own core 
it only reaches, according to their calculation, approximately 15 million degrees Celsius. 15 million degrees. I mean, of course, this is quite hot. However, it is not hot enough to produce iron. The most common element in the universe is hydrogen. And that's number one on the periodic table for those of you that remember your physics and science. That's number one, first element, hydrogen. Helium is number two. And everything else is a combination, fusion of the atoms of hydrogen, helium, to produce the other elements. Iron is way down the line. It's way down the line. It is 56. And as such, the, the heat which was necessary had to be in the billions of degrees. They estimate someplace around 5 billion degrees to produce iron. So our sun could not produce the iron. So then where did the iron come from? This was a question puzzling researchers. In the 80s, the late 80s, studying stars, they came to realize, of course, that the stars, huge, much greater stars than our stars, did in fact, in their degeneration, and their evolution, their development, produce the kind of heat which would produce, in fact, iron. When they turned into novas and what they called supernovas, then iron was actually produced. They exploded and iron is shot out into the universe in the form of meteorites, etc. Most of the meteorites which hit the earth here, they are made up mostly of iron. So in looking back, scientists then, in the late 80s, they began to re-examine uh, their view of the development of the earth and they came to the conclusion that in fact, what happened is that the earth which came off from the evolution of the sun was like a ball of ash. And that the meteorites hit the surface of the earth and in hitting the surface of the earth it increased the heat of the earth because with the impact there's energy released. So meteor showers hitting the earth increased the heat enough to melt that iron, not to produce iron, but to melt that iron. And then it would then sink through the surface towards the center of the earth and became concentrated in the core of the earth. And that's how they explain it now. Hawkins, you can find it in Hawkins' book, you know, as well as, as his book is called A Brief History of Time. This is one of the biggest atheists out there. You know, he, he argues against beginnings. There's no beginning and no end. You know, he has a whole set of... This is a crippled individual who's, as I said, one of the leading atheists out there. Uh, there's also another book called the first three minutes by Steven Weinberg, both of them uh, present exactly the same picture of how iron came to the core of the earth. So from that, we have iron actually coming down as Allah described it. He sent it down to the earth. And of course, it is the most stable element. The bonds which holds its atomic structure together are the strongest bonds of all of the other of the elements. So it does have that bas shadid. And of course its benefit is that being in making up most of the core, it produced the basis of the gravitational pull of the earth. 
which holds the atmosphere and the biosphere around the earth. Without that iron core to produce the, the gravitational field, we would not have any atmosphere on the earth. There would no, no life would survive on the earth. Critical. Furthermore, when you go into human beings, hemoglobin, when you go into plants, chlorophyll, all of these are the essential elements which uh, transform energy uh, it, from, from uh, material sources, from the sun, etc., to uh, chemical energy in our bodies which allow the cells to grow and everything, both human beings and plants. Iron is essential for their development. And this was described in the Quran some 1,400 years ago. These are among the signs, you know, for those who would reflect that there is in fact a God. One of the problems which people are faced with uh, who end up in a state of atheism, they may have started off traditionally as believers, but then they ended up in atheism because of the issue of what they call evil in the world. You know, where does the evil come from? And I've had discussions with atheists before. And usually the atheists will come off with these very powerful kind of arguments in the beginning. But when you listen and listen carefully to what they're saying, usually they will end up saying, I'm an atheist because my best friend died when I was a kid. My mother died. Hawkins, I'm born crippled. This is evil. Why? So... What appears to them to be evil, this is what has led them to say there's no God. Meaning that, as atheists used to argue, or they do argue, if God is all-powerful, and God is all-good, then why is there evil in the world? Because if it's all-good, then he must, and he's all-powerful, then surely he can create an, a world without evil. And if he's all good, that's what he's going to create. So the fact that there is evil means, according to them, there is no God. This is, this is the line of reasoning used by many of the atheists. However, one thing needs to be pointed out. Get this point clear. Why is there evil in the world? First, we need to realize that we only recognize things through their opposites. As they say in Arabic, We don't know sweet unless we know sour. If you don't know what sour is, you can't know what sweet is. You don't know left unless you know right. Left only has validity because there is a right. Similarly with up and down. If there's no down, then up means nothing. This is the reality. And similarly, we only know good by knowing evil. Knowledge of good comes through knowledge of evil. The second point to note is that yes, Allah is all good, and whatever He has created is good. However, the things which Allah creates, they may be good in and of themselves, that they're purely good, 
The intent of their creation was good, and the actual thing which is created appears only to be good. There doesn't seem to be anything evil from it. That's one aspect. Then there is another aspect of things which Allah creates, not for itself, but for the good that it causes. Meaning, if you looked at the thing itself, that thing may appear to us to be evil. However, it causes certain good which is far greater than the evil. So Allah created it for the ends, not for the means. And we function like that in our lives. If you go to the dentist, right? And the dentist pulls out that syringe. He's going to give you that shot of cocaine, right? To deaden your, uh, not cocaine, what do they call it? Xylocaine or whatever. They give it to you to deaden your gums. Shouldn't be giving you any cocaine, sorry. Okay? Anyway, um, xylocaine or whatever, this deadening. Now the needle that they give you, it's about this long, right? You see him, he pulls it out of his tray and he puts the stuff in his, oh my God, you know. That's the worst experience. You know, nobody can get over it. Going to the dentist, okay? Now, we bear it. Why? Because as a result of that pain, of that injection, it deadens the pain and he can extract that tooth. If we didn't remove the tooth, the harm to us was so great. So, for the sake of removal of the tooth, the greater good, we accept that needle. Because if anybody came along with a needle that long and said, I'd like to stick you with it, you're going to say, please don't. You know, you would not accept anybody sticking you with this thing. Except in that circumstance. Same thing with medicine. You're sick and the doctor pulls out some castor oil. You know? Castor, that's the worst one I can think of, right? I don't know if they still have it around now. When I was a kid, it was, that was the nastiest medicine out there, right? Castor oil. Just when he opens it, the smell of it just makes you, ugh, you know. But the doctor tells you, you take this, you're going to get well. So in spite of how nasty it appears, it smells, it tastes, you're going to take it, why? For the greater good that you're going to get from it. So similarly, Allah has created certain things which relative to our point of view may seem to be evil. But there is a greater good behind it. Sometimes the, the good is very obvious. It may be very obvious, sometimes it's not. But the point is we believe that Allah has created nothing purely evil. Nothing. We as individuals, we may commit what may be called pure evil. Meaning, we have an evil intent and we do that evil act. That is pure evil, relative to ourselves. Allah does not have any evil intent. And whatever act we see that may contain something of evil, there is a good aspect to it that maybe we cannot grasp. So even that evil, pure evil act of that human being, with that evil intent, the fact that Allah allows it to take place, it means that there is some good behind it that we can't see. So you'll see, for example, just recently in um, the Gulf, Gulf Air had a crash flying to Bahrain. Many Egyptians were on it, teachers coming back. They died. Everybody on the plane died. That's about a month ago. 
The next day there was a picture in the newspaper of this Egyptian, right? His father was kissing him on one cheek and his sister was kissing him on the other cheek. And what was the caption under here? The caption was, he had a big smile on his face. The caption was that he was supposed to have been on that plane. When he went to the airport, he didn't have his visa stamp in his passport. Now, this meant he was going to be late to go back to classes. Maybe he might lose his job or whatever. He was upset, screaming at the officials there at the counter, you know, why, you know, I should be able to get on the plane. I have to get on my plane. You know, this is wrong. You shouldn't. Very upset. But then, the next day, the plane crashed. And there he was on the front page of the paper, big smile from ear to ear, right? His father kissing him on cheek, sister kissing him. Because at the time when he couldn't get on the plane, he thought this was a great evil. He might lose his job. He's going to be late. Terrible situation. But then, the next day, it turned out to be the best for him. That's life. That's the reality. So we don't have a problem with evil in the world. Now, the next point is that, okay, if there is a God, and you have people who say, okay, yeah, I can accept there is a God. But prophets, nah. <laughs> no, no, no. God didn't reveal anything to any prophets. All this stuff is just fairy tales. You know, it's not really true. Well, the point is, again, if God created this world, if God was wise, then he would not create this world, put beings in it, and not tell them what they need to do. That's not wisdom. This is ignorance. Just like you, for example, if you send your kids to school, and you don't tell them what they're supposed to do at school. They don't know, I'm supposed to go into the class when the bell rings, sit down in my classroom in front of my teacher, get my books out and just do what the teacher tells me, do my homework, everything. If you didn't tell the kids to do that, do you think the kids would go and sit in the classroom? No, they'd head straight for the playground. They'd be on the playground, swinging in the swings and sliding on the slides all day till the final bang rings and they go home. That's reality. They had to be told what to do. Similarly in a company. If you hire people to work in your company and you don't tell them what they need to do, what are they going to do? They're going to go into the offices and just find out what to do and just go and work? No, no. They go to the lunchroom. They go to the lunchroom, have a chat and eat and, you know, they'd spend the day in the lunchroom. You have to tell them what to do. Otherwise, it doesn't work. That's very basic. So don't tell me that we have enough sense to tell our kids what to do when they go to school or tell our workers when they work in our factory or whatever. But Allah is going to create us and put us on the earth and not tell us what to do. That's, that's stupidity. That is nonsense. No. If there is a God, and God created us, then He told us what we are supposed to do here. So therefore, the purpose of our creation, the purpose of our being here, had to have been made known to us. And... That is, of course, through the prophets of Allah. They're the ones who conveyed that purpose to us. Now, with regards to this, correcting our beliefs, we can only do that with knowledge. So it means that the first habit or first principle that one who hopes to attain success 
the ultimate success out of this life has to develop is that of seeking knowledge. Because we have to know who God is for us to do what we are supposed to do in regards to Him. If we don't know who God is, then we can end up worshipping God as a man, as Christians say, or we worship Him as Hindus believe God became incarnate, incarnate in the form of a fish, of a frog, you know, they have the elephant head god, Ganesh, or whatever. You know, where do you stop? Cow. If you don't know who God is, then that's where you end up. So it is essential that we know who God is. So we have to have knowledge. Knowledge is essential. And that we have to be in the process, we have to be in the habit of seeking knowledge. And when we look, for example, uh, with look, looking at Omar ibn al-Khattab, right, who was one of the people promised paradise. And specifically in a hadith narrated by Jabir ibn Abdullah, he said that he heard Prophet Muhammad saying, I entered paradise in a dream, and I saw in it a house. When I asked who it was reserved for, the angel said, it is for Omar ibn al-Khattab. This is this hadith is found Muslim, it's authentic. Now, in another narration of Abdullah ibn Omar, he related that Prophet ﷺ had said, "While I was sleeping, I saw a cup of milk offered to me in my dream. I drank from it until its freshness was reflected through my fingernails. Then I gave the remainder to Omar ibn al-Khattab." The people asked, O Messenger of Allah, how do you interpret that dream? And he said, referring to the milk which he gave to Omar, it refers to knowledge. Knowledge. This is what Omar, one of the things that Omar was noted for. Omar ibn al-Khattab was noted for his knowledge. He advised Prophet ﷺ in a number of different occasions. And though the Prophet ﷺ didn't take his advice, revelation came confirming the advice of Omar. For example, in the prisoners after the Battle of Badr, when the Prophet ﷺ asked his companions, what should we do with them? Omar said, kill them all. Let each person take a prisoner who is from his family, his relative, maybe his uncle, maybe his father, maybe his brother, and kill them. That was Omar's suggestion. To make clear our break with kufr, disbelief. Abu Bakr's suggestion was free them for ransom or whatever. And the Prophet ﷺ took Abu Bakr's suggestion. Abu Bakr said they are relatives. You know, perhaps if we treat them kindly, maybe they'll come up, come up over to Islam afterwards. So the Prophet ﷺ, being soft-hearted person that he was made the ijtihad here and chose the suggestion of Abu Bakr. However, Allah revealed in the Qur'an that it was not befitting for the Prophet to take prisoners until he had established himself in the land. 
Because these people that they were fighting were people who killed Muslims in Mecca. The only thing that would bring them to their senses is like for like. This is war, this is battle. They're caught, execute them. They killed how many Muslims in Mecca before? That was the better choice. Also, Abdullah ibn Salam, a Jewish rabbi and scholar from the Qaynuqa tribe who converted to Islam when the Prophet ﷺ first came to Medina. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas related that he heard Allah's Messenger say, said that he didn't hear Allah's Messenger say about anyone alive and walking the earth, he will be in paradise except in the case of Abdullah ibn Salam. So this individual, he was noted for his knowledge again. He was knowledgeable as a Jew, as a rabbi, a scholar amongst them. And when the truth came, he accepted it. And increased in knowledge, he got the reward of having followed the religion that he was exposed to of Prophet Musa. And then doubled that reward by accepting Islam. So... The first principle is that of knowing Allah. Knowing about Allah. Believing in Him. Testifying to that belief. That is the first step to paradise. Because in knowing Allah, we know what Allah is not. The confused ideas which are out there, like the belief that Allah is everywhere. This is one of the confused ideas that people have. You know, though it has become very widespread, it is a confused idea. It is not from the teachings of Islam. Not the teachings of the Prophet ﷺ or his companions. The correct belief is that Allah is beyond his creation. Because when a person says, okay, Allah is everywhere, Allah is in you, Allah is in me, you have problems. Because somebody is going to come along and say to you, yeah, Allah is in you and me, but Allah is more in me than He is in you. So what does that mean? That you should worship me. And you've got people who have made this claim throughout the ages. People inviting others to worship themselves. You have 8 million people in India believing that this guy by the name of Sai Baba, they believe that he is God walking the earth. 8 million people including some of the people in the top echelons of the government, and even some Muslims. And also, issues of intermediation. You have people who are promoting the idea that we can pray to others besides Allah. We can pray to Prophet Muhammad or we can pray to the saints and ask them to carry our prayers to Allah for us. You have people t teaching this. But this is the wrong belief about Allah. It's a belief of ignorance. Because if we can pray through individuals to others besides Allah, then what is the difference between us and the Catholics who have a saint for every occasion? You lose something, you pray to this saint. You want to get married, you pray to that saint. You want to you know, get a big house, you pray to this saint. You got a saint for everything. And... Unfortunately, there are amongst Muslims who have a similar thing going. They have these saints that they pray to. Saints who are human beings, who died on the earth, who are buried. 
The places of their burial have become shrines where people make pilgrimage to. Thousands and thousands of Muslims. This is all misguidance. So we need to believe in Allah and believe in Him as He deserves to be believed in. So first step is correct your world outlook. We need to have the right one. The second is to commit ourselves emotionally. If we've established this belief, we know what it is, we have knowledge of it, we know what's right about it, then we need to commit ourselves to it emotionally. What happens is that people usually have this backwards. People are committed to something emotionally without having knowledge about it. The average Christian, you know, Hindu and others, they are committed emotionally to their system. I was born or whatever, my parents or whatever, my grandparents or whatever, there's no way I'm going to be anything but that. That is that strong emotional commitment to the thing. But no knowledge. So where we commit ourselves emotionally to something without having knowledge first, we then get locked into misguidance. This is satanic. Traditionalism is a satanic force amongst us. Where people hold on to traditions. Traditions which don't have their origin in divine revelation. So they become sources of misguidance. So we have to be committed emotionally. But following knowledge. And when Prophet ﷺ said, No one truly believes until Allah and His Messenger becomes more beloved to them than this world. We're talking about an emotional commitment. One of loving Allah. Of course, loving Allah and His Messenger is manifest in obedience, in action, in terms of obedience. But it is fundamentally an emotional commitment. And we find, for example, love of Allah, one expression of it is love of the Qur'an. There is a particular narration found in Sahih al-Bukhari, in which Anas narrates that a man from the Ansar used to lead them in prayer in Quba Masjid, Masjid Quba. Whenever he began to recite a chapter in prayer after the Fatiha, he would first recite the whole of Surah Ikhlas, Qul Huwallahu Ahad. And then he would recite the other chapter from the Quran. When he finished the prayer, those who were praying with him told him, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. You know, they advised him not to do it. But he continued to do so. Eventually, when the Prophet ﷺ came to visit Quba, they told him that this man was doing it. So the Prophet ﷺ called him and said, what prevents you from doing what your companions asked you to do? Those who are praying along with you asked you to do. And what is causing you to recite Surah Al-Ikhlas in every single ch- uh, rakah, every single unit of prayer? The man, the man said, O Messenger of Allah, I do it because I love it. I love Surah Al-Ikhlas. And the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Your love has put you in paradise. Your love of Surah Ikhlas has put you in paradise. 
So that love, this is that emotional commitment to Allah and His Messenger, expressed in the love of the Word of Allah, the Qur'an, that where it is sincere and solid, of course based on our foundation of knowledge of Allah, can put us in paradise. So, we have that commitment that we have to work on. Committing ourselves emotionally. Connected to that is the concept of crying for the sake of Allah. When I looked into the lives of a number of the companions who were promised paradise, Uthman, for example, radiallahu anhu, it was said that Uthman, whenever he stood at a grave, he would cry until his beard became wet. And on one occasion he was asked why he didn't cry at statements from the Qur'an or from the Sunnah which spoke about heaven and hell, but he cried at the grave. He said that the Prophet ﷺ had said to him that the grave is the first abode of the hereafter. If one is saved from it, then what follows is made easier. And if one is not saved from it, then what follows is more severe. So he would cry whenever he stood by graves. We also find amongst the other companions, Omar ibn al-Khattab. It was mentioned by some of the companions who prayed with him that they could hear him crying in his prayers all the way to the last rows of the Salah. Whenever he recited the verse, قَالَ إِنَّمَا أَشْكُوا بَثِّي وَحُزْنِي إِلَى اللَّهِ This was the statement of Prophet Ya'qub when he found out that his son uh, Yusuf you know, had been uh, killed according to what the, uh, his sons, the other sons had claimed. I only complain of my grief and sorrow to Allah. So whenever Omar used to recite that, it used to lead him to tears. Similarly, when the Prophet ﷺ was on his deathbed, he instructed Aisha to go and tell her father Abu Bakr to lead the salah. Aisha said to him, O Messenger of Allah, if Abu Bakr stands in your place, the people won't be able to hear him due to his excessive crying. He was known to be crying all the time when he was praying. But the Prophet ﷺ said, tell Abu Bakr to lead the prayers. So Aisha went to Hafsa, the daughter of Umar, wife of the Prophet ﷺ, and told her, tell the Prophet ﷺ that he shouldn't choose Abu Bakr because if he leads the prayers, nobody's going to be able to hear him in prayer because he cries so much. So Hafsa went and told the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ said, stop. You are like the women of Yusuf, the women around Prophet Yusuf. Tell Abu Bakr to lead the prayer. So, Abu Bakr was told, and Hafsa then told Aisha, you've never done any good for me. You know, you got me in trouble with the Prophet <laughs> Not knowing that the same thing happened to her also. Anyway, the point is that Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, all of these 
illustrious companions promised paradise, all of them were known to cry in their prayers. And we have a number of statements from Prophet Muhammad to that effect. The fire, for example, narrated by Abu Huraira, found in Sunan al-Tirmidhi, the fire will not touch a person who cries out of fear of Allah until milk returns to the breasts. In another narration also by, from Abu Huraira, he quotes Prophet as saying, two eyes have been forbidden to the hellfire. An eye which wept out of fear of Allah and one which stayed open throughout the night, standing guard for Islam and for the family from Kufr. We also have another narration from Abu Hurairah in which he said, seven people are shaded by Allah's throne on the day when there is no shade. The seventh one was one whose eyes fill up with tears when he or she remembers Allah in private. So this is one of the qualities that those who are going to be successful in this life must have. A soft heart. A heart which when it hears the Quran recited, tears comes to their eyes. When they reflect in their prayers or when they remember Allah privately, tears come to their eyes. These are people, people who, like Omar and Abu Bakr, who were involved in jihad, having to make very critical decisions. But at the same time, there was this other balance, a balance of softness with regards to Allah and His Messenger, and with regards to the words of Allah, the remembrance of Allah. So it is very important for us to develop. This is again part of that emotional commitment where the faith is real and the hearts are soft. And Allah warns us in so many verses in the Quran you know, about those whose hearts become hardened. We have to be very careful about that because the hardened heart, the hardened heart will not make it to paradise. Now how to develop that? We develop it by working on taqwa, fear of Allah, consciousness of Allah. As Allah said in Surah Al-Baqarah verse 282, Fear Allah and Allah will teach you. Fear Allah, and Allah will teach you. And also in Surah An-Kabut, the 29th chapter, verse 69, Allah says there, وَالَّذِينَ جَاهَدُوا فِيْنَا لَنَهْدِيَنَّهُمْ سُبُلَنَا And for those who strive in worship, for our sake, we will guide them to our paths. So, we work on our taqwa, by striving to obey Allah, because taqwa 
is obedience, ultimately doing what Allah has prescribed and avoiding what Allah has forbidden. We build our taqwa by seeking to please Allah in, our, in all of our actions. We also build it, we also build softness of the heart and emotional commitment by knowledge, by listening to the Qur'an, listening to it regularly, reading the Qur'an regularly, by reading about the different statements of the Prophet ﷺ with regards to crying for the sake of Allah. By remembrance of death, this is another way, remembering death, because Prophet ﷺ said the remembrance of death will destroy these feelings of great pleasure in this world. And also visiting the graveyards, going to the graveyards. When somebody dies, usually we don't think about going to help to wash the body. If we have the opportunity to do so, we should do so. Because this will help us get closer to the realities of our own lives. A reality which ends in our death. We should seek forgiveness from Allah. Do it regularly. Recognize our sins, repent. Because real repentance can only take care, take place when there is remorse, sadness. So these are among the roots to soften our hearts. One of the companions, Abu Ayyub, had said that a man came and asked the Prophet ﷺ to teach him a few brief words. And he said to him, when you stand in prayer, pray a farewell prayer. Don't say words you will later regret and don't wish for what others have. But when you stand in prayer, pray as if, as if this is the last prayer you're making in this life. So by trying to be more sincere in our prayers, Making it real, this can help to soften our hearts. And the Prophet ﷺ had said in the hadith narrated by Abu Hurairah, don't laugh too much because excessive laughter kills the heart. It's not to say we don't laugh at all, because of course some people, you know, do kind of promote that the Prophet ﷺ never laughed or his laugh was no more than just a smile. But no, in fact, his wives and companions narrated that he laughed on some occasions so much they could see his back teeth. So, yeah, he did laugh. And laughing is okay. But not all the time. You have people who everything is a joke. Where you always, you know, people who they're just joking, joking, joking like this. Where the whole life becomes a joke. This is no good. It destroys, it deadens the heart. And the Prophet ﷺ had told us in a hadith, which is sahih, found in sahih at O oh people, cry. And if you can't, then make yourself cry. If after all that we still can't cry, then we need to make ourselves cry. In other words, we force ourselves to cry. And if we do that enough times, of course it may feel very artificial initially, but if we do that enough times, then there is this barrier that we break, that we go past. 
And then when we should be crying, inshallah, we will be crying. The third habit that those who seek ultimate success, the success of paradise, must develop is complete trust. We need to have complete trust in Allah. Stawakkul. There was a companion of the Prophet ﷺ by the name of Ukasha. Ukasha ibn Mihsan. Now, he was promised paradise by the Prophet ﷺ, but he was promised paradise as a part of a group who had this characteristic of trusting in Allah. Abdullah ibn Abbas narrated that he heard Allah's Messenger say, The nations were presented before me, and I saw a prophet with a small band of followers, and another with only one or two people, and yet another with none along with him. When I saw a large group, I thought it was my nation, but I was told it was Moses and his people. Then I was told to look at the horizon where I saw a very large group, and I was told, this is your nation. There are among them 70,000 persons who will enter paradise without any reckoning and without any punishment. And when the Prophet ﷺ was asked, who are they? He responded saying, they are those who do not make incantations on themselves, nor do they ask for it to be done for them. Nor do they read bad omens into events, and they place their trust in their Lord. When the Prophet ﷺ said this, then Ukasha ibn Mahsan stood up and said, Pray to Allah that He make me one of them. And the Prophet ﷺ said, You are one of them. And then another companion jumped up and said, O Messenger of Allah, I pray that I'm one of them also. And he said, Okasha beat you to it. The door is closed. But that group was a group of people, 70,000, who put their trust completely in Allah. Abu Dhar had said, He's another companion who has promised paradise. He had said, Allah's Messenger called to me on one occasion and said, Will you make a pledge for paradise? Will you make a pledge for paradise? Okash, um, Abu Dhar said, Yes. And he said, I stretched out my hands to take the Prophet's hand in the pledge, a bay'ah for paradise. And the Prophet added this condition. He said, that you will not ask anyone for anything. And I said, yes. And he added, even if your whip falls, if you're on your camel or your horse and your whip falls, you will dismount and pick it up yourself. You will not ask anybody for anything. And that's what Abu Dhar was known for. He never asked anybody for anything. Another companion by the name of Thauban, he quoted the Prophet ﷺ had said, 
Who will guarantee, said it to a group of them, who will guarantee me that he will not ask anyone anything and I will guarantee him paradise? And he said, I will. And he also never asked anybody for anything. Okay, this is a level. It's not to say that that's what everybody has to do now. If you feel you're ready for it, then go for it. Abu Bakr did ask people. Omar did ask people. Uthman did ask people. Ali did ask people. You had leading companions who were the top. They did ask. But some among them chose this route. There are other routes. This route, which was that they didn't ask anybody for anything. Or the other one is trusting in Allah in the sense that we don't read bad omens into anything. This is a part of trusting in Allah. That we don't see anything and think something bad is going to happen because that happened. You know, which is widespread in various societies. We have omens and amulets people get, ta'wiz, these type of things to protect them from evil. And as Allah said in Surah Talaq, chapter 65, verse 3, And whoever trusts or puts their trust in Allah, Allah is sufficient for them. Now the question is, if we don't take the route of never asking anybody for anything, how else can we develop this sense of trust in Allah? One, we have to start off again with correct belief in Allah and knowledge of Allah. Knowledge of things which Allah has informed us about this life and about ourselves. First and foremost, it is knowledge that Allah knows best. As Allah said in Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 216, وَعَسَىٰ أَن تَكْرَهُوا شَيْئًا وَهُوَ شَرٌّ لَكُمْ that perhaps you will dislike something which is in fact good for you, or you may like something which is in fact bad for you. And Allah knows, and you don't know. So we have to believe that Allah knows best. That whatever happens is for the best. Whatever good we wanted that we didn't achieve, it is for the best that we didn't achieve it. Whatever evil befalls us, there is good in it. We have to believe Allah knows best. Also, we have to believe that Allah is just. That whatever befalls us is not beyond our capacity. It is not unfair. When Allah said, وَلَا يَظْلِمُ رَبُّكَ أَحَدًا in Surah Al-Kahf, Verse 49, it means what it means. That Allah is not unjust, your Lord is not unjust to anyone. That's Allah's statement. Also when Allah said, لَا يُكَلِّفُ اللَّهُ نَفْسًا إِلَّا وَسْعَهَا That Allah does not burden any soul greater than its capacity. This is the promise of Allah. We have to believe that Allah is fair. He's not going to put a burden on you which is really too hard for you, but I could handle it. No. Whatever burden he puts on you is what is suitable for you. Whatever burden he puts on me and for others is what is suitable for them. 
Allah tailor makes for each and every individual the burdens that He puts on each person in this life. And this is why suicide is haram. Because suicide is a person saying, God is unfair, unjust, it's too much, this life is just too much for me to bear. I can't deal with it. No, this is not the case. And this is the basis of the kufr of Satan. Because a lot of people think that Satan became a kafir, when Allah said, وَكَانَ مِنَ الْكَافِرِينَ Because he didn't bow to the angels. I mean, sorry, bow along with the angels to Adam. But this is not true. Yes, he was disobedient in not bowing. But disobedience doesn't make you a disbeliever. Because if he became a disbeliever, then every act of, disbelief, uh, of disobedience that we do would make us all disbelievers. Allah told us, don't do this, and we did it. Then we then become kafirs. It's not the case. We don't believe that an act of disobedience makes a person a disbeliever. No. What made Satan a disbeliever, why Allah called him, was because of the fact that he attributed to Allah injustice. He attributed to Allah in his arrogance, he attributed to Allah injustice. He said, Allah, you are unjust. How? He said it by saying, I am better than Adam. You created me from fire, and you created him from clay. Meaning what? Meaning that I'm not supposed to bow to him. I'm better than him. It's wrong for you to tell me to bow to him. So, he's attributing to Allah injustice and error. And that is the essence of his disbelief. So, to put and to develop the correct trust in Allah, we have to know that Allah is just. And that He doesn't burden any of us greater than we can bear. And further, that with every difficulty comes ease in the ma'al yusra That whatever burden we're facing now, it's not going to be forever. It goes on for a period of time, and then it goes. There's a break. Because if there was no break, we couldn't handle it. And Allah is fair, and He's just, and He's merciful, so He gives us a break. Principle is patience and perseverance. Patience and perseverance. We usually associate patience with calamity. That's the most obvious time for patience. And there are a number of occasions in the time of the Prophet ﷺ where people who suffered were promised paradise for patience with that suffering. One of the well-known examples is that of a woman known as Umm Zafar. Her name was Su'ir. Ata ibn Abi Rabah related that Abdullah ibn Abbas once asked him, May I show you a woman of paradise? And when she said yes, Ibn Abbas said, This black woman, pointed to a woman, came to Allah's messenger and said, I'm suffering from convulsions which knock me down and cause my body to become exposed. Could you pray to Allah for me? 
And he replied, In shi'ta or in shi'ti sabarti walakil jannah. If you wish, you can be patient with it, and paradise will be yours. But if you wish, I can pray to Allah to cure you. She said, I will be patient. But I become exposed, so can you ask Allah that I not be exposed? And the Prophet ﷺ prayed for her. But she accepted that trial. The trial which appeared to be something like a possession. But actually it was something which had a medical origin to it. A biological origin. It wasn't possession. Because whenever cases of possession were brought to Prophet ﷺ, he dealt with it directly. He didn't tell people to bear it. He dealt with it. So in this case, knowing that it was biological, he told her she can be patient and Allah will give her paradise. She chose that. Um Waraqa. She was also promised paradise. When the Prophet ﷺ was going out with the companions for the Battle of Badr, she asked permission to go with them so that she could treat the sick and wounded that perhaps she may be granted martyrdom, shahada. Prophet ﷺ said, stay at home for Allah will grant you the shahada that you're seeking. She freed a young female slave of hers and a young male. But she did it by them earning their freedom. That means they would pay their way out. And it was taking some time for them to get free. So they got impatient. And one day they conspired together and they wrapped a cloth around her head, suffocated her and strangled her to death. Then they fled. Omar ibn al-Khattab brought them back and said, Allah's Messenger used to visit Um Waraqa and say, let's visit the martyr. And then he instructed that the two be crucified. How to develop patience? Patience is developed again based on knowledge. But before looking at other issues of patience, I'd just like to mention also another narration of a woman known as Al-Ghamidiyya. This woman was one married woman who committed adultery and she got pregnant. She went to Prophet Muhammad and asked him to purify her. So he instructed her to go back. First he told her, you know, just to go home. You know, don't say this, just go home. But she told him, no, I'm pregnant and I want to be purified. So he told her, okay.